You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. It's always an honor and a pleasure to have the opportunity to open and expound God's Word. This morning we'll be hearing from the book of Revelation, chapter 1. So if you'd like to turn there with me, that'll be found on page 1028. And this will actually serve as part one of a two-part series, and we're going to do on Revelation chapter 1. We'll be coming back to this text next week as well. But our focus this morning is going to be on verses 4 through 8. We'll be focused on verses 4 through 8. However, I am going to read most of the chapters so we get more of a context. So if you'd like to read silently with me, go to Revelation 1, starting at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness." the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to our God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so... Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word. And we thank you that you have not been silent. No, you are a God who has spoken. And now, Lord, we pray that you will open our hearts so that we might hear you speak again. Speak to our sinful hearts so that conviction might be brought upon us. But we ask that you would also speak to our frailty with your loving grace so that we might glory in our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, the book of Revelation. (laughs) Exactly, right? As I was preparing my sermon, I was reminded that this is a book of the Bible that generates a ton of interest. And given its content, it's really no surprise why. I mean, for many people, the book of Revelation is mysterious and frankly difficult to understand. For others, it might bring to mind particular novels they read or movies they saw maybe like in the 70s. Um, I remember that in particular. In short, a lot of ink has been spilled on these 22 chapters in the book of Revelation and opinions abound regarding their meaning. So how do we begin to make sense of this book? Well, 
I would say let's start by turning back to verses 1 and 2. If you look at verse 1, we see the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So notice right away a couple of things. First, we learn the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which identifies Jesus as both the author and the subject of the revelation, though the triune God is very much in view in this book as well. We learn here that the book is intended for who? His servants or believers, and it's made known to us through one of these servants, the Apostle John. And finally, it's intended to show us things that must soon take place. So if I were to give a quiz, we could remember all that, right? Let's say it another way. Revelation is a book written by and about Jesus Christ through the Apostle John, for believers. That's simple. That's something we can hang our hats on, right? Now, if you've spent any time reading the book of Revelation, you know that it includes a lot of interesting language. In fact, you've probably noticed this over the past few weeks and even this morning as we've been reading it week by week. Now, concerning this, we have to understand that this use of language is by no means an accident. It's due to the fact that the Revelation is a very specific type of literature. It's a specific type of genre. So, for example, if you are reading poetry, you don't expect it to read like history, do you? Or if you are reading history, you wouldn't expect it to follow the same rules as poetry because certain genre has different rules of interpretation. So in order to comprehend Revelation, we do need to begin with the understanding that this is a book of what we call apocalyptic and prophetic writings. This is actually revealed in chapter 1. If you look again at the first verse, you see that word revelation? This word is a translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, which if you take it literally means revelation, disclosure, or unveiling. So in other words... This could also be read as the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And then later in verse 3 and in other parts of the book, we read that this is also a book of prophecy. Now, why is this important? Why does this matter? It's important because it gives us clues on how to understand and interpret what we're about to read in the book. Understand that apocalyptic and prophetic writings are imparted in this very symbolic vision and are meant to reveal things that we would not be able to otherwise see or know apart from that revelation. And we see this type of literature as well in the Old Testament. We see it in Ezekiel, we see it in Daniel, and we also see it in Zechariah. So it's not unique just to Revelation. And I love how Dr. and Pastor Dennis Johnson refers to this. He says, quote, The most important thing to know about the literary form of the book of Revelation is that it uses the technique of symbolism from start to finish. Instead of portraying characters and events directly, much of the time the author portrays them indirectly by means of symbols. For example, Jesus is portrayed as a lamb. Churches are portrayed as lamps on lampstands. 
Satan is portrayed as a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. So this means that our job then is to do our very best to interpret what these symbols represent. Because it's a book full of symbols. All the while we have to remember that these images described are very mysterious in their unseen realities. So, what's the overall theme then and purpose of Revelation? And I like how Dr. Vern Poitras sums it up. He says it like this. He says, quote, Revelation is addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is today part of Western Turkey. Each church receives rebukes and encouragement in accordance with his condition. Persecution has fallen on some Christians and more is coming. Roman officials would try to force Christians to worship the emperor. Heretical teachings and, or, heretical teachings and declining fervor would tempt Christians to compromise with the pagan society around them. Revelation assures Christians that Christ knows their condition. He calls them to stand fast against all temptation. Their victory has been secured by the blood of the Lamb. Christ will come soon to defeat Satan and all his agents, and his people will enjoy everlasting peace in his presence. That's a pretty good summary of these 22 chapters of the book. Revelation, then, is a call to stand firm in the midst of life's trials and tribulations. And it's not just a message for the seven churches listed here in chapters 2 and 3. It's a message of hope for all believers at all times. So consider these following diagnostic questions. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the circumstances of life? Have you ever felt perhaps like life is swirling out of control? Has your faith in Christ weakened as a result? Well, then there's good news. Revelation is a book for you because <laughs> it's going to speak to those things. So with that background in mind, let's begin to look more closely at Revelation 1. And as we do, my prayer for us this morning is that as we begin to look more closely at this chapter, it'll strengthen our faith in the hope that God is guiding all of history including yours and mine, and he's doing it toward his good and perfect ends. So if you look at verse 4, you're going to notice immediately an introduction that looks similar to those found in the other New Testament epistles. We are dealing with the introduction of the book here. So in verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So as we've already discussed, John is writing to seven distinct churches in Asia, but do you notice the number seven used here? The seven churches? Oftentimes when this number seven is used in Revelation, it carries this symbolic meaning of completeness or perfection. For instance, you see this in chapter five, where Jesus is represented with seven horns and seven eyes. And we're told this symbolizes his complete power and knowledge. And also later in verse 4 of chapter 1, there's going to be a reference to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God. We'll deal with that in a couple minutes. But the point is this use of seven is being carried over from Genesis in the creation account. Where you remember the story, God created everything in six days, and then seeing that it was good, on the seventh day, what did He do? He rested. 
because creation was complete. There was nothing that could be added. The point I want to make with this particular reference to the seven churches is to say that this letter is not just for them. When, when John is using this number seven, it's also to indicate that this is for all believers at all time, the complete and total church. Now, notice how John begins his greeting. Grace to you and peace. So from the very outset of his letter, John begins with a blessing. Grace to you and peace. That is exactly what these suffering Christians would need. Grace and peace. But notice that John isn't the one who's actually offering the blessing, is he? No, John's the mediator of the blessing. Who's offering the blessing? God is offering the blessing. Because John is recognizing that grace and peace can only be found in and come from who? God alone. John can't offer these believers peace or grace on his own. And I think we would be foolish if we pass this up too quickly because there's an important lesson for us here in these words. When we find ourselves in overwhelming situations, when we find ourselves in desperate need of peace, we have to remember something. Only God can provide the peace we seek. Too often, at least if you're anything like me, you think that peace is going to come only if your circumstances change, right? Well, if I could just change this, then I'll have peace. But Revelation shows us that God allows these circumstances into our lives to drive us back to Him, knowing that's what's best for us. And it's that profound act of grace that brings us peace. And I say grace because we don't deserve it. God doesn't have to come to us, change our situation so that we find ourselves relying on Him. But He does. And that's what grace is. In fact, the opposite for those who go their whole lives never thinking they need God is really an act of wrath. If you think about it. Grace and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Notice that as John describes God in these verses, he does so using this triune formula. We see the Trinity in view here. So there's God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now in reference to the Father, John uses a phrase that comes up multiple times in Revelation. It's Him who is and who was and who is to come. We see this phrase again in verse 8. And then we're going to see it later in chapter 4 where we're given this really crazy, beautiful picture of the throne of God. And we see these four living creatures who night and day never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now the significance of this phrase really can't be un overstated because it's similar to the divine name that God reveals to Moses back in Exodus 3. You remember at that time, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. He declared himself to be the, uh, the God of Moses' father, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He noted how he had seen the affliction of his people in Egypt. And then he called Moses to go and deliver his people. Remember the story? And of course, Moses is afraid because he knows what this is going to entail. And so he asked the Lord, he says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
And God said to Moses, I am who I am. In other words, God has no definition. In fact, it's God who defines all things. See that contrast? He is self-existent. He is the creator and the sustainer of all of life. So when we come to this phrase in Revelation 1, we're to receive it as a declaration of truth. How can you be assured when life goes wrong, when life goes bad? Because history and your and my very existence are being governed by the God who is and who was and who is to come. Nothing is outside of his control, including each and every circumstance of our lives. Again, listen to how Dr. Vern Poitras states it. He says, when God's people are beset by temptation or persecution, a revelation of God's character and glory is the best remedy. His power guarantees the final victory. His justice guarantees vindication of the right. And His goodness and magnificence guarantee blessing and comfort. The blood of the Lamb demonstrates that solid redemption has already been accomplished. Even in the midst of trials and persecutions, God is still the ruler. He controls everything. So in other words, when difficulties come, and they come, won't they? Some are worse than others, as we know. We don't need practical advice. It can be helpful, but that's not fundamentally what we need. We don't need seven steps that will help us overcome our situation. What we need is a renewed vision of God, of who He is, His sovereignty, and His love for us. Cherish those people in your lives who drive you back to God. I, uh, Mom, you're that person. I'm, I'll go to Mom with those concerns, those cares, those worries. Donald, God's in control. You can trust them. Cherish those people in your life because they're giving us and giving you exactly what you need. So next, John references the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Well, there's that number seven again. And at first glance, this can seem kind of confusing because elsewhere in the Bible, the Holy Spirit's usually referenced in the singular as one. So what are we to make of this seven spirits before the throne? Well, sometimes Revelation will, in fact, refer to the Holy Spirit in the singular. Look, for instance, at Revelation 3.6. If you just look kind of next page, you'll see it says that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is going to be repeated in 3.13, almost word for word. I think it is word for word. But then Revelation also refers to the Spirit in the plural. So look ahead, for instance, at Revelation 4.5. So if you go to Revelation 4.5, here is that, that beautiful vision of God's throne. In verse 5 we read, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And then if you look in chapter 5, in verse 6, you're going to see a similar reference. So chapter 5, verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, listen to this, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
So here in Revelation, the uh, symbol of torches and of eyes are being used to represent the Holy Spirit. Now, another thing we find in Revelation, like in other New Testament books, is that it relies very, very heavily on the Old Testament. So, for instance, this use of seven is actually a reference to Zechariah 4. So in Zechariah 4, it's a story where Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah receives this vision where an angel comes to him and gives him a vision of a golden lampstand with seven lamps, seven lights on it. So it's a menorah. And then there's two olive trees to each side. In the vision, Zechariah is told that this lampstand is symbolic of the seven eyes of the Lord. Well, we just read in chapter 5, 6, the seven eyes, which are the, se- the seven spirits of the Lord. And then we're also told in Zechariah that this lampstand is representative of the power of the Holy Spirit, which the angel declares is going to be the one responsible for the rebuilding of the temple. Not Zerubbabel. It will be the Holy Spirit who builds this temple. It's the verse that says, not by might, not by power, but my, be, my spirit, says the Lord. The other significance of this phrase, the seven spirits of God, also comes from Isaiah 11. If you want to turn to Isaiah 11 with me, we're going to see this again. Isaiah 11. We're going to begin at verse 1. So in this messianic prophecy... It's foretold that the coming Messiah will be perfectly empowered by the Holy Spirit in a sevenfold way. So Isaiah 11.1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And let's count. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, one. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, two and three. The Spirit of counsel and might, four and five. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So the seven spirits before the throne in Revelation is the same sevenfold spirit that empowers the Messiah to fulfill his mission. And it's the same spirit that empowers the temple to be rebuilt. It's the same spirit who empowers the church today to be an effective witness to the world. Back to verse 5. Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And now John's going to turn his attention to the really second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ the Son. And notice the threefold description he uses of Jesus. He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. On earth, And there's yet another Old Testament reference here that I think we would be good to refer to, and it comes from Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is where our call to worship came from this morning. That's why I chose that psalm. Well, in this psalm, there's a messianic foretelling of these offices of Christ. In verse 37 of Psalm 89, we're told that like the moon, he, reference to Jesus, Jesus' throne shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And in verse 27, we're told that God will make him the firstborn and the highest of the kings of the earth. So here again, we see that John is referencing the Old Testament 
language in his letters to the New Testament church. But what does John mean when he refers to Jesus as the faithful witness? Well, you'll recall when Jesus was arrested and on trial before Pilate, remember the question that Pilate asked him? He said, so you're a king? And how did Jesus answer? He said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And of course, we know what this cost Jesus, don't we? His witness to the truth took him to the cross where he took upon himself the penalty of our sin. One of the fundamental purposes of the church is to bear witness to Jesus Christ, just as Christ bore witness to the Father. It's literally central to our calling as the people of God. 2 Corinthians says that we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. Now here in Revelation, understand John is writing to encourage the church. He wants to encourage the believers. But note his message is not, follow Jesus so that you can avoid persecution and hardship. That's not his message, is it? No, the truth is that many of these early Christians would go on to face severe persecution, even to the point of death. What John is doing is he's imploring his readers to imitate Christ's example, even if it means persecution, and suffering. But he encourages them as well, and that encouragement comes in the second description of Jesus, namely that he is the firstborn of the dead. The point of which is to say that Jesus' resurrection indicates that there's more resurrections to come. Okay? I'm the firstborn child in my family, one of four brothers. One is here today. I'm the oldest of four boys. The only reason the word firstborn has any significance in my family is because there are three who come after me. Right? Otherwise, you're just the child. That's to say, Jesus' resurrection is the template for all who have put their hope and trust in him for their salvation. And listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. You know these words. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And the point being that our comfort amidst life's trials, persecution, and even death is that it's not the end. Because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, we too have the hope of resurrection and eternity with Him. In fact, later in chapter 1, the glorified Christ is going to tell John, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Hades. And finally, John describes Jesus as the ruler of kings on earth. And if you look, you can see a progression in this threefold description. Jesus is the faithful witness, which ultimately leads to his death. But why is there death? Death is a result of sin. Well, Jesus was perfect, so death can't hold him. So because of his perfection, Jesus becomes 
the firstborn of the dead. And therefore, because of that, he now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. John then continues this in verse 7 with a description of Christ's return. He writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So right now here in verse 7, there's a change. We're given a glimpse of Christ in His glory, which is very different from the image we read about Him before Pilate, isn't it? Where His glory is veiled. This is not Jesus meek and mild. No, this is Jesus, ruler of the kings on earth, who's coming to make every knee bow and every tongue confess that He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And His coming with the clouds is a clear allusion to the Son of Man who's referenced in Daniel 7. The Son of Man who is presented before the Ancient of Days and given dominion and glory in a kingdom. John then alludes to a prophecy here, yet another Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 12.10. It actually has a double fulfillment in this verse. It was first fulfilled at the crucifixion. So in John 19, you'll recognize these verses. It says, John 19, 36 and 37, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they've pierced. Which is a reference to Zechariah 12, 10. But here in Revelation, John is telling us there's actually another fulfillment of this verse as well. And it's in view when Jesus returns. But this time, the mourning's not going to be one of pity, but one of deep regret. The appearance of Jesus coming to reign is going to strike deep, is, will strike deep sorrow and agony in those who pierced him in such a way that they'll be given over to wailing and despair. Because at that point, there will be no hope. This includes those who pierced them with their indifference, their pride, their apathy their unbelief. Which if you're not in Christ this morning, if, you're, if you've not turned to Him in faith for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're not trusting on His perfect life, the message here is don't wait another moment. Today is the day of salvation. If, however, you are in Christ this morning, meaning you have placed your hope and trust in Him alone for your salvation, you're leaning totally on Christ this prophecy should motivate you to strive after Christ's example to be a faithful witness each and every day, wherever we are. Because there's coming a time where Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. It should also cause us to take heart because you serve the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, whose faithfulness took Him to a cross where He endured humiliation, scorn, and the very wrath of God for your behalf. But you know the story. Death couldn't hold him. He's the firstborn of the dead. And so now he, he reigns at the right hand of God the Father and will soon come in majesty to destroy his enemies once and for all. He is the beginning of all history. He made history. And now all history is working towards his glorification at the end of time. So if I could boil today's message into one sentence, it's this. Grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come.
Peace in this life will only be found in God alone. And it comes in knowing that he is directing all of history, past, present, future, toward his appointed ends. Only then will our anxious hearts find peace in the truth that our very lives and those of our loved ones are in his hands. So although following Christ in this life often leads to ridicule, it can lead to persecution, and for some of our brothers and sisters in this world, it can even lead to death, as it did to those here in the churches of Revelation. And who knows, maybe we'll face persecution like that one day. We pray we won't, but who knows? Only God does. We are to be reminded that nothing comes to us that hasn't first come through His hand. And that one day He will return in power and glory to make right what we've made wrong. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words in Revelation and for the comfort they provide. As we survey the world around us, whether it's popular culture, politics, or even our daily lives, it's easy to believe this world is spinning out of control. But Revelation 1 reminds us that this is not the case. You are in control. You are the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Lord, I pray that you will feed our souls with this truth this morning. Cause it to take deep root in our hearts so that in times of turmoil, which we know are bound to come, we'll find grace and peace in the truth that you're sovereign and in control. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.